Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 12, Chapter 15. Unpack this entire chapter with focus on Andre's behavior, thoughts, and psyche. What is he? What is really going on? What do you predict will happen moving forward? Twisted Everyway says, Guys, we've passed the 80% mark. We're in the last 90 days of the year. Glad to see so many people are still with us, and we've picked up some new people as well. I think this might be the end for Prince Andre. It seems like everyone has accepted his fate and there is not much that can be done for him. Uh, it's looking pretty grim. Sometime in the past, as it seems like Andre is in his staring at the sky, feeling like he understands everything mode again. So I'm not hugely convinced he's really dying. But then Tolstoy intimated that his guts were wounded and I don't know if that's survivable without antibiotics. Maybe because this death isn't a surprise, out of the blue it will actually be a death this time, but I'm still waiting for Andre to sit up and decide he's okay. Tolstoy has cried wolf too many times. Warren Kovofifi says, I can't believe that Andre might actually be dying for real this time. I thought for sure there was some more trickery up Tolstoy's sleeve. That might end up being the case, but I really doubt it this time. Rybred X says, I'm pretty sure in the next few chapters he'll be doing sprints and push-ups. I doubt that. I do doubt that. There's only really one way to know what's in store for our young hero, Andre, and that's to keep reading. So I think we're all keen to do that, because this is the final chapter of Book 12. Which always, um, something big always happens at the end, doesn't it, of a book? So, um, let's keep reading. Alright, chapter 16. Not only did Prince Andre know he would die, but he felt that he was dying and was already half dead. He was conscious of an aloofness from everything earthly and a strange and joyous lightness of existence. Without haste or agitation he awaited what was coming, that inexorable, eternal, distant and unknown, the presence of which he had felt continually all his life. Now uh, was now near to him, and by the strange lightness he experienced, almost comprehensible and palpable. Formerly he had feared the end, he had twice experienced that terribly tormenting fear of death, the end, but now he no longer understood that fear, he had felt it for the first time when, he, when the shell spun like a top before him, and he looked at the fellow field, the bushes and the sky, and he knew that he was face to face with death. When he came to himself after being wounded, and the flower of eternal unfettered love had instantly unfolded itself in his soul as it freed from the bondage of life that had restrained it, he no longer feared death and ceased to think about it. During the hours of solitude, suffering, and partial delirium he spent after he was wounded, the more deeply he penetrated into the new principle of earthly, uh, sorry, eternal love revealed to him the more he unconsciously detached himself from earthly life. To love everything and everybody, and always to sacrifice oneself for love, meant not to love anyone, not to live this earthly life. And the more imbued he became with that principle of love, the more he renounced life, and the more completely he destroyed that dreadful barrier, which, in the absence of such love, stands between life and death. When during those first days he remembered that he would have to die, he said to himself, well, what of it, so much the better. But after the night in Mistichi, when half delirious he had seen 
her, for whom he longed, appear before him, and having pressed her hand to his lips, had shed gently happy tears. Love for a particular woman again crept unobserved into his heart and once more bound him to life, and joyful and agitating thoughts began to occupy his mind, recalling the moment at the ambulance station when he had seen Kuragin. He could not now regain the feeling he then had, but was tormented by the question whether Kuragin was alive, and he dared not inquire. His illness pursued its normal physical course, but what Natasha referred to when she said this suddenly happened had occurred two days before Princess Mary arrived. It was the last spiritual struggle between life and death in which death gained the victory. It was the unexpected realisation of the fact that he still valued life as presented to him in the form of his love for Natasha and a last, though ultimately vanquished, attack of terror before the unknown. It was evening, as usual. After dinner, he was slightly feverish, and his thoughts were preternaturally. Preternaturally. Pre. Oh, there's another word. <laughs> his thoughts were preternaturally clear. I don't know what preternaturally means. I'm going to look it up. In a way, or to a degree that is beyond the ordinary course of nature. There you go. Sonia was sitting by the table. He began to doze. Suddenly, a feeling of happiness seized him. Ah, she has come, thought he. And so it was in Sonia's place that Natasha, who had just come in noiselessly, since she had begun looking after him, he had always experienced this physical consciousness of her nearness. She was sitting in an armchair placed sideways, screening the light of the candle from him, and was knitting a stocking. She had learned to knit stockings since Prince Andre had casually mentioned that no one nursed the sick so well as old nurses who knit stockings, and that there is something soothing in the knitting of stockings. Stockings, The need- needles clicking lightly in her slender, rapidly moving hands, and he could barely, he could clearly see the thoughtful profile of her drooping face. She moved and the ball rolled off her knees. She started, glanced around at him, and screening the candle with her hand, stooped carefully with a supple and exact movement, picked up the ball, and regained her former position. He looked at her without moving and saw that she wanted to draw a deep breath after stooping, but refrained from doing so and breathed cautiously. At the Troitsa Monastery, they had spoken of the past, and he had told her that if he lived, he could always thank God for his wound, which had brought them together again. But after that they never spoke of the future. Can it be, or can it not be, he now thought as he looked at her and listened to the light click of the steel needles. Can fate have brought me to her so strangely only for me to die? Is it possible that the truth of life has been revealed to me only to show me that I have spent my life in falsity? I love her more than anything in the world, but what am I to do if I love her, he thought and he involuntarily groaned from a habit acquired during his sufferings. On hearing that sound, Natasha put down the stocking, leaned nearer to him, and suddenly, noticing his shining eyes, stepped lightly up to him and bent over him. You are not asleep? No, I have been looking at you a long time. I felt you come in. No one else gives me that sense of soft tranquility that you do, that light. I want to weep for joy. Natasha drew closer to him, her face shone with rapturous joy, Natasha, I love you too much, more than anything in the world. And I, she turned away for an instant, why too much, she asked. Why too much? Well, what do you think? What do you feel in your soul, your whole soul? Shall I live? What do you think? I'm sure of it. Sure, Natasha almost shouted. 
taking hold of both his hands with a passionate movement. He remained silent a while. How good it would be, and taking her hand, he kissed it. Natasha felt happy and agitated, but at once remembered that this would not do and that he had to be quiet. But you have not slept, she said, repressing her joy. Try to sleep, please. He pressed her hand and released it, and she went back to the candle and sat down again in her former position. Twice she turned and looked at him, and her eyes met his beaming at her. She set herself a task on her stocking and resolved not to turn around till it was finished. Soon he really shut his eyes and fell asleep. He did not sleep long and suddenly awoke with a start and in a cold perspiration. As he fell asleep, he had still been thinking of the subject that now always occupied his mind, about life and death, and chiefly about death. He felt himself nearer to it. Love, what is love, he thought. Love hinders death. Love is life. All everything that I understand, I understand only because I love. Everything is, everything exists, only because I love. Everything is united by it alone. Love is God, and die means that I... A particle of love shall return to the general and eternal source. These thoughts seemed to him comforting, but they were only thoughts. Something was lacking in them. They were not clear, they were too one-sidedly personal and brain-spun, and there was the former agitation and obscurity. He fell asleep. He dreamed that he was lying in the room he was really in, but that he was quite well and unwounded, Many various indifferent and insignificant people appeared before him. He talked to them and discussed something trivial. They were preparing to go away somewhere. Prince Andre dimly realised that all this was trivial and that he had more important cares, but he continued to speak, surprising them by empty witticisms. Gradually, unnoticed, all these persons began to disappear and in a single question, that of the closed door, superseded all else. He rose and went to the door to bolt and lock it, Everything depended on whether he was or was not in time to lock it. He went and tried to hurry, but his legs refused to move, and he knew he would not be in time to lock the door, though he painfully strained all his powers. He was seized by an agonizing fear, and that fear was the fear of death. It stood behind the door, but just when he was clumsily creeping towards the door, that dreadful something on the other side was already pressing against it and forcing its way in, something not human, death was breaking in through that door, and had to be kept out. He seized the door, making a final effort to hold it back. To lock it was no longer possible, but his efforts were weak and clumsy, and the door, pushed from behind by that terror, opened and closed again. Once it, once again it pushed from outside. His last superhuman efforts were vain, and both halves of the door noiselessly opened. It entered and it was death, and Prince Andre died. But at that instant he died, Prince Andre remembered that he was asleep, and at the very instant he died, having made an effort, he awoke. Yes, it was death. I died and woke up. Yes, death is an awakening. And all at once it grew light in his soul, and the veil that had till then concealed the unknown was lifted from his spiritual vision. He felt as if powers till then confined within him had been liberated, and that strange lightness did not again leave him. When waking, in a cold perspiration, he moved on the divan. Natasha went up and asked him what was the matter. He did not answer and looked at her strangely, not understanding. That was what happened to him two days before Princess Mary's arrival. From that day, as the doctors expressed it, the wasting fever assumed a malignant character. 
but what the doctor said did not interest Natasha. She saw the terrible moral symptoms which were which to her were more convincing. From that day an awakening from life came to Prince Andre together with his awakening from sleep and compared to the duration of life it did not seem to him slower than an awakening from sleep compared to the duration of a dream. There was nothing terrible or violent in his comparatively slow awakening. His last days and hours passed in an ordinary and simple way. Both Princess Mary and Natasha, who did not leave him, felt this. They did not weep or shudder, and during these last days they themselves felt that they were not attending on him. He was no longer there, he had left them. But on what reminded them most closely of him, his body. Both felt this so strongly that the outward and terrible side of death did not affect them, and they did not feel it necessary to ferment their grief. Neither in his presence nor out of it did they weep, nor did they ever talk to one another about him. They felt that they could not express in words what they understood. They both saw that he, he was sinking slowly and quietly deeper and deeper away from them, and they both knew that his had to be so, this had to be so, and that it was right. He confessed and received communion. Everyone came to take leave of him. When they brought his son to him, he pressed his lips to the boys and turned away. Not because he felt it hard and sad, Princess Mary and Natasha understood that, but simply because he thought it was all that he was re- all that was required of him. But when they told him to bless the boy, he did what was demanded and looked round, as if asking whether there was anything else he should do. When the last convulsions of the body which the spirit was leaving occurred, Princess Mary and Natasha were present. Is it over? said Princess Mary when his body had for a few minutes lain motionless, growing cold before them. Natasha went up and looked at the dead eyes and hastened to close them. She closed them, but did not kiss them, but clung to that which reminded her most nearly of him. His body. Where is he gone? Where is he now? When the body, washed and dressed, lay in the coffin on the table, everyone came to take leave of him, and they all wept. Little Nicholas cried because his heart was rent by painful perplexity. The Countess and Sonia cried from pity for Natasha and because he was no more. The old Count cried because he felt that before long he too must take the same terrible step. Natasha and Princess Mary also wept now, but not because of their own personal grief. They wept with a reverent and softening emotion which had taken possession of their souls at the consciousness of the simple and solemn mystery of death that had been accomplished in their presence. All right, Andre, out. Gosh, that was heavy. Uh, Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.